I ask you please to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 on this Palm Sunday. It's easy to meet the theme uh, anticipated on Palm Sunday because the whole book of Revelation is about King Jesus, King Jesus who wins. And we are studying this book as we do, books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're here in chapter 2 studying these seven churches to whom Jesus is speaking. Jesus is in John's vision walking among the seven candlesticks that represent the churches of Christ, seven of them, the perfect number, number of completion, not all the churches even at the time, but these seven churches representing all Christian churches at all times throughout the ages. There's something, in other words, for every one of us in every one of these studies of these churches. So far, we've looked at Ephesus, the wealthiest and largest of them. And Jesus says, uh, you're doing many things well, but you have quit loving as you ought. You've quit loving in a way that clearly distinguishes you as Jesus' people. Smyrna receives nothing but praise for their willingness to suffer and to be slandered, to be made poor because of their living for Christ. It's a call to us to ask, are we willing to sacrifice? Are we proving our faith by the way we are willing to suffer slander and, and even poverty on behalf of Christ? And the church of Pergamum receives a similar warning and chastisement. Some things are going well. Some things in their church could go even better. And as we'll find in every one of these, there are applications for us. So as you prepare in your hearts prayerfully to hear not only the, the gospel that cuts us, but the gospel that heals us, I want us to pray the Holy Spirit Pray right now in your quietness of your hearts as we read this text that he would open your eyes and my eyes that we would see beautiful things in this portion of his gospel. We begin reading in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to, to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. June the 6th, 1944, a young cadet at West Point received a letter from General George S. Patton. It was on the eve of D-Day, that military victory that would break the back of the Axis powers, particularly of Nazi Germany. This young cadet preparing to go into that war, that great Second World War, terrifying. That young cadet received a letter, a long letter, that contained these two paragraphs. My personal belief, he says, is that if you have a 50% chance, take it, because the superior fighting qualities of American soldiers led by me will surely give you the extra 1% necessary. I'm sure that if every leader who goes into the battle will promise himself that he will come out either a conqueror or a corpse, he is going to win. There's no doubt about that. Defeat is not due to losses, but to the destruction of the soul of leaders. The live to fight another day doctrine. What success I have, I have as a result of the fact that I have always been certain that my military actions were correct. Many people don't agree with me. They are wrong. The unerring jury of history written long before both of us is dead will prove me correct. There's a man who may not always be right, but he's always sure. And how comforting would it be as a young, a 20-year-old cadet preparing to go into a deadly and costly war, to hear from the commanding general himself, if you're in a battle where there's a 50-50 chance, you're going to win because I'm your general. You've got a guaranteed 51% chance of succeeding. Follow me and you'll be a victor. Well, it'd be an incredible encouragement. It wouldn't be an infallible encouragement, however, because General Patton did make mistakes and General Patton eventually died. In this letter that you have and I have in the book of Revelation, these seven smaller letters to these churches, we have a much more and infinitely surer hope. We have a letter from the commander-in-chief himself, the one in, who, in whom all things consist, who holds all things together by the power of His Word, who says to you, you must not quit. I have overcome, I will overcome, I am going to endure with the church of Jesus Christ. And if you stick with me, if you hang on to me, you cling to me, there is no chance of your failing. So there's never an excuse to compromise your faith. There's never an excuse. Fear, poverty, slander, never excuses for compromising any of the principles of the Christian faith as revealed in the Word of God. Never an excuse because you are serving 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. Will there be loss for you if you follow him? Yes, there will be loss in this life. There will be scorn. There could even be martyrdom as it's illustrated in this text. He says, I will be at the end of your journey with the welcoming words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you stick with me, allow me to enable you to persevere courageously. Now, how are we going to do that? <clears throat> how, do we, how do we endure in this long battle? How do we persevere to the end that we have the overcomers, the conqueror's crown, where we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, where we receive that little white stone, that tessera stone, like a, a ticket of admission with our name written on it. How do we do that? We do it, first of all, he says, by what these uh, citizens of Pergamum have done well. It is to profess the truth with our mouth, to profess that Jesus is Lord. Antipas was such a one. <clears throat> we don't know anything about Antipas other than this text. But somehow, by confessing that Jesus was Lord, by being a faithful witness and not compromising, he lost his life for it. And Jesus gives this encouragement. I know his name. He may have been killed by the, the cultural authorities, but I have never forgotten him, and he is with me. I know his name. He's precious to me. Now, what, what would there be in, in the city of Pergamum that, that would have possibly led to the martyrdom of Antipas? All the same things that are present in our culture. Pergamum was not along a major trade route. It wasn't close to the, close to the sea, but it was nevertheless very successful, very prosperous, because it had three of the things that we want in every culture too. It had knowledge, it had learning, it had a tremendous library there. In fact, the governor had recruited away from Alexandria their chief librarian to build up their library at Pergamum. It was a center of scholarly activity, it was a center of knowledge. In fact, our word parchment comes from Pergamum. They were the producer of intellectual manuscripts. People want to know, want to be where the knowing is. They also had health care, or the promise of it anyway. Uh, they had the, 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 the temple of Asclepius Soter, the goddess who promised that if you got near to her, if you offered the proper sacrifice, you would be saved, Soter. She was identified as the Savior. The Greek word Soter means Savior. So you can imagine how unpopular it would be for Christians to say, we worship Jesus Christ the Savior. And then it had social advancement, the promise of social advancement we'll talk about in a moment, but <clears throat> because of certain social gatherings that one could visit and, and be, become popular in, one could be propelled to higher places 
socially. And then it was a center of political power. They had an imperial cult there, a temple that sponsored parties and sacrifices and so forth that that showed your patriotism to the Roman Empire. And if you visited that and went through the motions, well, you could get some advancement, some more influence in society as well. Somewhere along the line, Antipas ran afoul of one of those forces. He ran afoul of those who said, no, this is what it means to be a learned intellectual person. And maybe Antipas said, no, this is what is true. Or this is what it means to be saved. And Antipas said, no, there is no salvation except in Christ alone. You're an exclusivist. They may have gotten rid of him. Or or this is what it takes to be advanced socially, and Antipas refused to do it. Or this is what it means to show real patriotism, and he didn't do it, and so he was removed. It's important to profess verbally the true faith. We are good at that. Pergamum was good at that. He says, I know you have been faithful in your witness. We have certain doctrines that we say are essential to the Christian faith. They are doctrines like God is triune. The Bible is inerrant, infallible, authoritative. That that God has created male and female in His own image. That human beings fell into sin. God is an eternal plan to redeem. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has provided uh, the price for our redemption. Jesus Atonement fulfills righteousness. Redemption is applied to the elect believers or citizens of the kingdom of God. God has made a new people in the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are marks of and sustaining symbols and sacraments of the church. And Christ will return visibly and raise us from the dead physically. Those are among the essential doctrines, the core doctrines of a gospel church traditionally evangelicalism, even before that what was called fundamentalism. All those words have been misapplied through the ages, but this is, these are the core doctrines the Bible teaches, and they must be professed. I don't think we, nor did the citizens of Pergamum, have much trouble professing that they believed those doctrines. The problem is and was with Pergamum is putting those doctrines to practice ethically in day-to-day life. It is not only necessary to profess with your mouth, to repeat the Apostles' Creed, to, to know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to ascribe to the essentials of faith as they're outlined by our church. It's not only necessary to profess them and to belong to a church that articulates them, it is also necessary to see the fruit of those professions in your daily ethical living. Jesus called that taking up your cross and following Him. That is dying to every other form of acceptance than, to be, than the acceptance of Christ alone. Dying to every other pursuit for yourself and your preservation if it means compromising your total dedication 
to Christ. It is dying to everything else, every other pressure, every other prescription, every other requirement for acceptance into a social or political or employment circle except the approval of Jesus Christ. This is where the application gets difficult and Jesus doesn't pull away. Jesus is faithful to commend their doctrinal fidelity, but then says, now this is what I have against you. You hold fast to my name, but you tolerate some who hold the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now we begin to get some insight into what those Nicolaitans were as they were referred to in uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Though we don't have any other outside uh, insights into the Nicolaitans, we certainly know what Balaam did. Balak, the ruler of the Moabites, came to Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God, and he said, look, if you will, you know, we, we're, we're not getting, we're, we're scared to death of these Israelites. They are obviously blessed by the Lord. If you will pronounce a curse on them, we'll give you a lot of money. Balaam, who's supposed to be a prophet of the Lord, said, hey, let me think about that. Let me go, let me go to the big man himself and see what he will allow. It's not hard to figure out in that story why Balaam is regarded as less intelligent than the donkey upon which he was riding. Because Balaam somehow thought that if he goes and explains to the Lord, you know, the rent is coming due, I have mouths to feed, I have a job, I have my, my, my income is dependent on this, and you know, I haven't, been, uh, I haven't been paid very well lately, and here this guy offers me some, some money if I will curse him. And you, you have to admit, God, there's some reason to curse these people. They're not easy to get along with, and they're, and they're, they're prone to compromise, so there's got to be something that uh, you need th- to curse them for and to rebuke them for, and it could, be a, it could be a mutual benefit, you know, for you and for me. What does God say? Of course you can't do that. He goes back and he apologizes to Balak. I'm sorry, I tried it. It won't happen. Balak tells him to go back again. He goes back again. He goes back a third time. It takes the the Lord dropping Balaam's donkey and causing the donkey to talk to Balaam to say, if I go any farther, you're going to be killed by that angel up there. What is it? He was wanting them to curse Israel he wouldn't do it. And so Balaam then found a workaround. He says to Balak, here's the way you can get them to, to curse themselves. Just provide an opportunity for sexual immorality. They fall for it every time. You do that, they'll bring cursing on themselves. Balaam represents compromise, compromise with uh, materialism and compromise sexually. Sexual and materialistic or social compromise. Start with the first one. Social compromise. <clears throat> I, said, <clears throat> I said that in, in Pergamum, there was an imperial cult. And in the, the last decade or so, we've, we've gained insights from, from archaeological scholarship into what, was, what the significance of these imperial cults was. Bruce Winter, a scholar uh, studying 1 Corinthians, 
uh, it, published it in a book called After uh, Paul Left Corinth. And uh, he said, uh, here's some insight into 1 Corinthians 8, when Paul is addressing that, that business of stronger and weaker brothers, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and whether to eat meat offered to idols and so forth. What's going on there? <clears throat> he said, you know, some of those people were saying, I eat meat offered to idols because I don't believe that the idol means anything. Well, what was happening is that an imperial cult there were festivals and parades and dinner gatherings. They were social events. If you got invited to one of those, well, there was promise for you to advance. You were invited. You, were, you became a member of a, an elite social club, an inner circle. You, you were brought into a circle of friends, a network who could advance you, could advance you socially. They could advance you in your employment. They could advance you politically. Now, nobody was required to go. Not even Christians were legally bound to go. That's, what, that's the point that's made in Acts chapter 18. They were not required to go. It was an invitation. You can either come or you can, you can refuse it. But if you come, there's advancement to be had. If you refuse it, well, you're just going to be passed over. It's not necessarily that we're going to, we're going to burn you at the stake, <clears throat> not even that we're going to take all your stuff away. You just, well, just, you'll just kind of be excluded. Your, pro, your, your business won't be patronized. You won't make as much money. You won't have as many friends. You won't be, you'll be shamed. And so Christians faced with that real tension. It wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult, easy to make a living in those days. And so they said, you know, if... If I refuse to give any impression that I think that the Roman governor is godlike, if I, if I refuse to give any impression that I believe that this is necessary to advance me socially, well, I mean, I, it could be really difficult for my family. So I think that it's okay for me to go. After all, I'm a citizen of Rome. I have a right to go anywhere I want to. Plus, I know that Christ is King and Lord, and so I can go and I can smile and participate, and I can even eat the food. And I know I'm not eating food to an idol. There's no such thing as an idol. It's untrue in my heart. I'm not going to compromise with, <clears throat> with the gospel, but on the outside, I'm going to give them what they need to advance me, and then I'll give, they'll give me what I need. And, they, and after all, I'll be present. I can, I can give a wit. Maybe I have opportunity to talk about the gospel. Or if I work my way into higher echelons of, of society, I'll have other opportunities to speak for Christ. This is an, intro, this is an entree. Within 50 years of the writing of this epistle, Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, this area, Pliny said, you know, we used to be afraid of Christians, uh, now we're not. They pose no threat to us whatsoever. They blend very comfortably into our culture. Within another hundred years, Tertullian, the theologian, said that there was no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. He was virtually indistinguishable, except for two things, except for public drunkenness and sexual immorality. Otherwise, he says, the Christians blended in with everybody else. 
They chased the same social idols. They spent their money the same way. They allowed themselves to be puppeted by the social and political elite so that they could get ahead. They didn't drink too much, and they didn't sleep around. That was their distinction as Christians. Could it be true of you? What might it cost you to stand up for Jesus? What membership in what society might it cost you? There are not many. There are not many organizations that uh, require you to be drunk. And there are not many organizations that require you to sleep around. But there are numerous organizations, formal and informal, who say, if you're going to be a part of us, keep your mouth shut about the ethics of the kingdom. If you're going to be a part of us and we're going to give you business and we're going to advance you in the company, we're going to buy your products, we're going to allow you to be in our neighborhood, keep your mouth shut about certain things in our society. Don't use that word justice. Don't use that word of sexual fidelity. Don't express a a, a political opinion that is contrary to the consistent platform of a particular political party. If you get out of step, you get out of line, we're going to shun you and shame you. Maybe even take away your livelihood. In every one of our lives, there is that place where the cross lies down across your life. And and Jesus says, Jesus holds out the cross to you. And he says, you will either carry this cross through this temptation, through this pressure, and identify yourself with me, or you'll put it in the shadow and hide it and try to hang on to it secretly, dragging it quietly behind you while pretending that you're a part of the, of the inside crowd so that you can continue to get ahead. What is that for you? Every one of us has it. You may feel that the whole culture is against you, but there's a whole bunch of people around you who feel the same way you do, so you're not alone. You may feel that a, that a whole bunch of of people who are, who are not officials, they, they run social media or they, they dominate a particular, a particular area of, of uh, inclusion that you want to be a part of. And if you identify with Christ, you find yourself all alone. You, you'll find yourself rejected by Democrats, rejected by Republicans, reject, rejected by Uh, African-Americans rejected by white, rejected by Hispanics, or rejected by 
uh, environmentalists or rejected by non-environmentalists. You will find a place as one who follows the narrow road of biblical prescription. You will find yourself never consistently in agreement with any dominant worldview. And in such times, your goal must be, I only want to find approval from Jesus at the end. A few years ago, just a few years ago, I read a startling, read from a, a book that was startling to me, written by an atheist named Alan Wolf, and he was criticizing American evangelicalism. And uh, he was criticizing it uh, not because he found, uh, uh, not because it was so offensive to him personally, even though he didn't agree with anything in American evangelicalism, but he said, we desperately need it. We desperately need people like evangelicals have historically who will stand for the right things in society and make our whole society more just and more, and, and a place that, that is, uh, that is flourishing, causes people at the, at the lowest rungs of society to flourish. And yet, the modern evangelical, he says, is selling out. The modern evangelical has created a Faustian compact, compact with the culture. The, the, the modern evangelical, according to statistics, is one who spins, lies, cheats, drinks too much, smokes everything, consumes porn and divorces at the same rate as the rest of the culture. Now, what he means by evangelicals is he, mean, he says that there are those who are born-again evangelicals and then born-again non-evangelicals. There are people who say they're born again, but I'm not, I don't have all those alt-right or those conservative, what I view as alt-right, or, I, I, or I'm, a, I'm a born-again evangelical and I, I reject those those what, I call, what someone might call liberal the, uh, political persuasion. He says, you put them all together and they're essentially the same. He said, the only distinguishing statistical difference between evangelicals in America and atheists is that evangelicals don't recycle. Christians, he says, have sold their souls to a growth-oriented, spirit-filled, he puts in quotes, growth-oriented, spirit-filled religion. They have sold their soul to try to be as unoffensive to other people as possible so that their church would keep growing. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are saying, that's, that's right. <clears throat> that is what those people out there are doing. That's why I want my church to be known as a politically conservative church so that this church will grow. Or somebody else in the church is saying, yes, I know that's what's happening with those people over there who are... Cons- I, that's why I want my church to be known as a politically liberal church so that the church might grow. Both are wrong. What we must be is individual Christians and a church who says, this is what the Bible teaches And it doesn't matter who agrees with us and who doesn't. I have been a minister now long enough to have seen all of the 
political convictions of each party totally flip-flop. There was a day when I would preach against the sin of abortion and the Democrats would leave my church because they were the pro-life party. And then there was a day when I'd preach against abortion and Republic, or preach against, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I would preach against abortion and the Republicans would leave because they were the pro-choice party. And I, then it flipped and I would preach against abortion and the Democrats left because the Republicans had gone. And the sermons or the convictions as Christians must stay the same, radically grounded to Scripture and let the cross fall where it may. Whether it's issue of poverty, whether it's issue of race, whether it's issue of preservation of life, pre-born, born, elderly, whether it's the issue of standing up for those who are poor and downtrodden, these are all implications of those, those doctrines that we profess, that the Bible is authoritative, whether it's the issue of sexuality. Marriage between man and a woman, whether it's a, a matter of loving the same sex attracted but, uh, but, uh, but one who is faithfully abstinent, all of those issues can get you in trouble. But they must be proclaimed and adhered to as those who take up their cross and follow him. Jesus, we don't want Jesus coming in among us and saying, listen, I've, I've roamed your halls. I've listened to your bathroom conversations. I've listened to you in the parking lot. I've listened to you in your homes, in your, in your, in your, in your, around your dinner table. And I have this against you. You tolerate Balaam. You tolerate the Nicolaitans. The other issue that he confronts is sexual immorality. C.S. Lewis said that the sexual ethic of the Christian of Christianity is the most offensive doctrine there is. It's what keeps more people from coming into the kingdom than anything else. One time I was in a meeting and someone asked my friend Tim Keller, why do you think this is about 10 almost 10 years ago. Why do you think that there is no more revival, that, there's not, that we're not experiencing revival in the local church? And he said, because too many people are sleeping around. Now, it sounded like a non sequitur. He didn't hear the question properly, we thought. But what he meant was, here is the, here is the place where the cross cuts the most deeply, being faithful sexually as a single person, as a same-sex attracted person, as a married person. The temptation to pornography, the temptation to, to emotional infidelity, the temptation to premarital sex is so great that, that even someone who, who knows all the truths of Christianity says, that's just a bridge too far, that's a weight too heavy. There has to be a way that this can be justified. And, and then people looking on from the outside saying, well, they say that Christianity is the only way, truth, and the life, and yet they live like I do, so why should I make myself miserable uh, uh, while I'm uh, doing what I want to sexually? 
uh, by becoming a Christian, why don't I just keep living like I do? It's, it's, it's the reason Aldous Huxley continued in his, his atheism because he said he didn't want to limit his sexual freedom. And yet we must do more than we have been doing, and that is just say, don't do that. Just stop that. Stop your pornography and stop your infidelity and, and stop experimenting sexually. It's, that doesn't work either. I was a little bit behind in the news last week when, about the motive by that man who conducted that horrible killing, pulled out that horrible killing spree in Atlanta. I didn't realize that it was not only against Asian Americans, but it was also because of his some kind of twisted uh, sexual guilt, and he was somehow eliminating, he thought, his, those who were tempting him. He was a man caught up in sexual addiction. He was active in his local uh, evangelical church. And other Christians writing about that said, here's what's been the problem. We've just been telling people, don't do this. We've made them feel guilty. We've said, stop it. But we haven't told them Why? We haven't given a more compelling reason. We haven't preached the good news the gospel brings to our sexuality. So in the few moments we have left, I want to, I want to, I want to depart and have a, just a pure pastoral word with you out of my experience. I hope for your encouragement and for your healing, for those who of you who are struggling to be sexually faithful and those who have those you're working with to be sexually faithful and ask you to take up the cross in a way that becomes attractive to others trying to find liberation. It said in, in this, you're not going to find this in the text. It comes, it's, I hope, and it's all biblical, but it comes mainly out of my personal my personal pastoral experience over the years. If you are battling sexual, uh, sexual temptation, which to be alive is to battle it, then here are four things I want to remind you of. And don't, don't get after me for being too brief about any of them. I, I'm hindered by time. This is going to take, to apply all these things can take hours and, and maybe even years. But the first thing I want you to think of, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you R-A-B-C. I wish I could come up with something clever for the R, but R-A-B-C. The R is the resurrection of Christ. Here is the place you must begin. Don't begin just with covenant eyes or trying to punish yourself to stay away from what is tempting you sexually. Start with the resurrection of Christ. We're going to have a whole Sunday dedicated to this next week. Please come back. The resurrection of Christ. And, and the reason I mention that is because my friends who have, who have battled through their sexuality, I remember one friend in particular who is same-sex attracted, remains same-sex attracted. He's a pastor in, in uh, Pennsylvania. He's married. He has uh, at least one child. And yet he said, it all began, he's, I knew I wanted to be a minister. I knew I was called to the ministry. But, um, but, uh, but I had this this same-sex attraction, and I wanted to act out on it, so I thought I would find a seminary that would tolerate my views while teaching me the rest of the Bible. But then I realized if Jesus was raised to life, I can't pick and choose the Bible. I've got to, I've got to submit to all of it, so I have to accept its sexual ethic as well. Begin with the resurrection of Christ, which affirms the authority of Scripture even in the places that are unpleasant. The second thing is Admit 
that you're as sinful as the Bible says you are. You have to start with the resurrection of Christ to get to that point. And so instead of blaming your mother or your, or your husband or your wife or the pressures of the day or your stress or your mental illness, or instead of finding any other thing to blame for your yielding to sexual temptation, acknowledge, yes, okay, my mother wasn't good to me, my father mistreated me, I was, I was sexually abused in the past, I'm not getting from my husband or wife what I really want. Okay, that's true, but the, but the truer truth is that in that hour, that moment of temptation, I choose to do that because I want to. That's a hard truth to face. But it's necessary to face it in order to receive the good news of the gospel, which comes next. Believe that Jesus loves you. You confess to Him the most shameful, embarrassing things in your life, which He knows already. And realize He has known this from before the foundation of the world. He's known this about me that I can look fully into the face of Christ and say, you suffered and bled and died for me and I choose to do this anyway. You know I do that, and yet you still say, you love me as my Father. And then the C is, confess it to someone who matters in your life. Don't call up the anonymous hotline. Confess it to someone who matters in your life, not as a punishment, but because when you confess it to someone who matters in your life, that person matters in your life because most likely you know they love you truly and you dread telling them because you don't want to disappoint them. You are ashamed to do it. But when you do it, you will break the back of the evil one holding you in your, in your is his bondage and you will hear from that person, I love you. And I'll walk with you through this. You have pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and, 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 and friends and all around whom you, could, you can come to and take up the cross of Christ and you'll find freedom. Not that you'll never struggle again, but you will struggle with hope instead of without hope. It's better news. The gospel is good news for your sexuality. It can be the fulfillment of who you are as, a, as an image bearer of God and not a life of shame. We're pressing on to that day when we'll hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That letter that I started with by George Patton to the young cadet, I won't read any more of it. except that it was signed, Your Affectionate Father. This was General George Patton writing to his son Benjamin, who was a cadet, and he signed it, Your Affectionate Father. Yes, George Patton had all the bluster and all the confidence that if you follow me into battle, I'll give you success. But I guarantee you, there's nothing more precious in this letter that this young man received than those last three words, your affectionate father. And how does our text end? Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it.
It's a reference to a tessera stone, a, a ticket for admission, as I said earlier. He's saying you might not get that ticket to the social events that you're accustomed to or, or your friend groups, but here's what you're aiming for. That day when Jesus calls your name, a pet name that only you and he recognize, and when you hear it, you'll say, that's the Jesus I know, and you'll turn toward him, and he'll hand you this white stone, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And at that moment, it will be worth every penny you've lost, every social acceptance you have sacrificed, even giving your life for Christ to hear those words. Let's do it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we confess we are a weak and forgetful people led by a weak and forgetful pastor. Thank you week after week for coming into our midst, putting your arms around us and saying, you are loved. Now what can there be afraid, what can you be afraid of? We pray for that one who is, is here and is struggling with your kingship and submitting to you as Lord in, a, in an area of life that can cost them. That one who has never bowed the knee to Christ. That one who is smug and saying this morning, I sure hope those people are listening to that. Oh Lord, help us all to shoulder the cross this day that you might get a name for yourself and that you might give a precious name to us someday. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.